Today's audience was separated into two groups. Not on the color of their skin were they separated when they arrived. They were separated based on the color of their eyes. But they have no idea that they were separated. What we did was treat each group differently, discriminating against the people who have blue eyes, catering to those people with brown eyes. Come on, come on, come on, come on. What color your eyes? Blue? Over there, put it on. No, no, no. Over there. The blue-eyed people were pulled out of line, told to put on a green collar, and wait outside. When the brown-eyed people arrived, they were told to step to the front of the line. Audience members with brown eyes were allowed to enjoy coffee and donuts. The blue-eyed group became upset when they saw the brown-eyed people were being seated first. Diversity expert Jane Elliott helped set up the experiment. I've been a teacher for 25 years in the public, private, and parochial schools in this country, and I have seen what brown-eyed people have done as compared to what blue-eyed people do. And it's perfectly obvious. And if I didn't believe it before this morning, you should have been here this morning when we brought these people in here. Feeling discriminated against, the blue-eyed audience members were visibly upset. She was rude to us, rude. all of us. Yelled at us, called us names, pushed us aside. She was rude. This Say, why doesn't Jane have a green collar on? She She's got blue eyes. Because I've learned to act brown-eyed. I have a brown-eyed husband and three brown-eyed children. Why did you? And the message in this room is, act brown-eyed and you, too, can take off your collar. Act intelligently oh, and you, too, won't on. need your collar. That's, None of you have, have acted intelligently yet. It wasn't long before the brown-eyed people bought into the idea that they were superior. You people... in school who was blue-eyed. She was so stupid. She was always copying off of my papers. These people were so rude and so noisy today, we couldn't hear any ourselves even talk. It was ridiculous. Eventually, the audience figured out the show was really about race. Now, he was so angry, he took off his collar way on early. How many of you people of color can take off the collar that we have put on you? How many of you can take off your color? But if a black male refuse to follow your orders or your husband's orders or your father's orders on the street, you would not see that as being highly principled. You would see him as being an uppity nigger. Well, we can see where this is going. She's saying that everybody has racism in them. It's not really about the eye. She's trying to teach about racism. But she can't get away from the fact that God created the races and you are going to be different. You can't help it. God to be created like that. one race, the human race, and human beings created racism. And that was in 1992, y'all. <laughs> oh, y'all. This gonna be profane faith. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers, too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, y'all. How's it going? What's happening out there in podcast land? 
Hope the summer is continuing to treat you well. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is your boy, Dan White Hodge, and uh, I'm here in White Hodge Podcast Studios in uh, Chicago. Um, and uh, it's another great week. Um, got my lab set up here this year. Um, I'm excited. I told myself that uh, when I got tenure and when I kind of got some of the professional goals accomplished, that I would return to my first love music and that is exactly what i have done um i've gotten my studio back together and if you've known me you've known i've loved music i've uh engaged in it i mean i is as far as i can remember when i was a kid i was involved with um just something with music my mom was a piano player dd played a little bit as well um my grandmother and I took lessons um, when I was in uh, grade school, and then as I got into middle school and high school, I started playing more and more by ear, and then uh, slowly but surely got into you know the hip hop scene, and so was in the industry for a while, and so I. Uh, but when I you know, I my fundamentalist years walked away from it, um, and you know it, at that point I kind of just turned my back on everything, and then. Uh, low and surely hip-hop came back music came back but at that point I was already working on another career and I was like well I can't do both and so I promised made a promise to myself I was like, when I reach tenure when I get to a place where I can kind of breathe a little bit I'm going to come back to it and I've kept that promise y'all I've kept that promise to myself those are important things to have um, and to do really I mean when, when you make a promise to yourself man when you break it there's there's nothing worse there's nothing worse um I mean, maybe, you know, maybe lying to your spouse or your partner or something like that. But, you know, I mean, I was able to keep it in a way that I was I felt good. And so my summer project this year was to get my studio up. And so that's what I've been spending the last few days doing. And uh, I'm excited. I built my own console, which was great, stained it and uh, put the shellac and everything on there and, you know, got it to the specifications I wanted, you know, and I didn't pay no three, four thousand dollars for no console. When I saw how much consoles were, y'all, that's crazy, man. I was like, I'm not paying that much money. I paid like two eighty for all the materials, two hundred eighty dollars for all the materials you know, the raw materials and I made it myself. And so I'm really excited. I'm just excited because man, I'm just, it's just glad to get back and play on my ASR 10. I have, you know, the Roland, the Cursewell K2000. I mean, again, I know for those of you who ain't into this stuff, it's kind of like, wow, what did you just say? But for those of us who are kind of nerds on music and uh, gear, I'm a gearhead. Um, I am, I, this, this is good stuff, man. And so uh, I'm excited to get back in. It's a brave new world. When I left the music world, it was all analog and slowly moving into computers and you know, Pro Tools was just starting to come out in the mid 90s. And so now it's just a whole nother world. They got virtual instruments. Like, what the heck is that? So, um, but it's fun. It's fun to learn. And uh, I have enjoyed my time off and getting to just relax and get my mind straight because, you know, I know more BS is coming <laughs> as soon as the school year starts or as soon as I get back in that office. So I'm trying to take it in, get ready. And, you know, and the reality of it is, is I don't, you know, I don't hate my job. I, I actually like what I do. I, I, you know, in fact, I love what I do. I, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to do what I do. And I know I couldn't do no office job. I couldn't do no nine to five. Those of you out there doing nine to fives, God bless you. God bless you. Cause man, 
I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. No, not kidding. Mm. I got to have the flexibility. I don't like uh, micromanagement. I love being able to be creative. As you know, I'm an Enneagram four with a wing of three. Um, and I have some, you know, some, uh, some, some seven and eight in there as well. So I like to, you know, I have an investigative mind or a five. I think I got to go back and look at that. I think it's a five. I think the investigative one is five. Don't, I'm sorry. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know those you Enneagram experts all out there are probably like, no, no, it's this, it's this. <laughs> and so, but I have an exploratory. So I love that. And so this really fulfills that area of, you know, my life and my, my profile and who I am as a person. And so. Um, I really appreciate that. And, and I, I thank God for that. Cause it's, it's not, it's not, you know, there's a lot of people who are working jobs that they just hate and they don't like, and they couldn't, you know, they, they would love to get to something that they really enjoy doing. And so I feel fortunate enough to be in that position to do that. And so I thank God that I'm able to do that. And so I don't want to make it sound like that. The actual job, it's just all the other BS, right. That you got to deal with. You know, the phone calls, the parents, the, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, you know, it's, it, it gets tiring every year to have, you know, the same, you know, you're teaching intercultural communication and you're teaching, you know, courses on race and ethnicity, the Bible, whatever. And you get the same kind of questions and I get it. I'm a professor and they're there to learn. It's just some of the same old things over and over and over, particularly from white students or just students who just been raised in a white context and stuff. And so all that stuff wears on you and so um one of the things i'm hoping to do in season three is to really lean into like i talked about this last week um rest and the self-care i think it's really important that we do that i don't think enough people who are out there doing activist work or do just any kind of resistance work um are taking good care of themselves there's a, there's some but there's not a lot and i think that's that's a that's a bad thing because this thing can wear you out you can burn out people are depressed and so i think these are these are things that these are areas that we have to do and so i've just disconnected you know i mean i know there's some people out there been trying to email me and and like hey man i want to get a hold of you and everything i'm just like man this is this is my time this is i gotta you know like uh auntie maxine says you know it's like I, i'm reclaiming my time so um yeah i i am um you know i'm 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 trying to clear it out because i know the next you know kind of break won't be till christmas and stuff and so i'm trying to make sure that i get you know that time back and and just really you know begin to and it's just and it's good for me to just have time to think and to think through theories and theorems and read new books and you know get on the computer you know not for work and actually get on there to look at youtube videos and some funny cat videos and all that so those things are all important y'all those things are I can't say enough how important those things are and how they impact how you how you live, how you how you see the the outlook of life. So I just want to encourage you. If you're not doing that, um, I know some folks out there. I'm not going to drop no names or nothing like that. But I know some folks of mine who are friends and man, they just run themselves to the you know, to the ground. And I'm just like, why? Why are you doing that? And I get it. I used to do it, too. And it's not until you really just come to a point where, you know, you're like depressed and you're anxious and this and you're wondering, like, why? Why do I keep going? Like the work's going to continue to be there. You know, you got to ask those questions, right? Like what what is it inside of you that keeps you driving? What is it inside of you that is is keeping you motivated? Um, and for me, it's, you know, many different things. And so it's not you know, it's not just teaching. I love it. But, you know, that's not my entire life. And so. Um, that's what this time is for me in the summer. So that's why you, you know, hear me keep talking about it. So I think that's, 
That's good stuff. Um, man, did y'all uh check that uh clip out that I played here at the beginning? Woo wee! That's some stuff right there, y'all. Um, man, that uh, you know, that's some that's some crazy stuff. I mean, when you think about blue eye, brown eyed, um, that it, I'll, I'll post the link to that video and everything uh, in the show notes. So again, you know, if you're watching, you can click on that and check that out. Um, I think. The reality of it is, is that race is such an ongoing problem. I mean, it's it's not even we know that. Right. And those of you listening, we know that um, I, I, I'm oh, as a teacher, I'm always looking for more uh, pedagogical processes to help people understand what is going on, because it's not enough just to state fact. It's not enough just to to say, oh, you know, this is this is what um, you know, this is what has happened to me. This is what uh, you know, this is this is this is this is this is my experience. Right. Let me show you some facts. Let me show you, this. you know, as a black man, you're you know, you're always kind of, you know, um, as I like to call it, you know, you're questioned, um, you know, you're 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 cross examined and stuff. And so it's not enough to do that. And so, you know, you almost have to give people a sort of experience that they can go through that they can better understand what it is you're talking about and this is exactly what jane elliott if you haven't you know known who jane elliott is i mean she's she was the one who did the original brown-eyed uh blue-eyed experiment uh and that was a clip from oprah the oprah show back in 1992 back when i graduated high school man and um you know they, she just discriminates against uh the blue-eyed group and uh those with brown eyes and so you know it and she sets the parameters up very much the way we set them up uh here in, in society right all the subtleties when i think about you know black panther right uh the movie black panther you know that it broke all these records you know people saying oh man ethnic minorities aren't going to go out and 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 you know see a movie like that that's solely around them you know they broke all these records and you still have people at marvel still you know dragging their feet about you know oh, are we going to do another movie or are we not meanwhile ant-man and the wasp are out there with like you know two three different movies and i'm just like come on man really that's a small thing i'm into superheroes right now but that's a that's one small thing man i mean we can just open up the news right now and just see the different treatment between um ethnic minorities african americans asian americans uh, latinx folks and how those are valued in the face of whiteness white bodies white ideology white worldviews and you know that's that, that you know you can't you can't ignore you can't ignore that i mean and, and plenty of people do lord knows i tried to 20 some odd years ago when i was on staff with young life and trying to be a good little you know uh uh um uh, uh evangelical negro and 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 hook that up um it's you know it's you can ignore it, but it, it it'll kill you and very oftentimes it's easy to you know, like, you know, in the experiment, people are able to take off certain things and stuff. But as a black man, I'm not. And so, again, just being conscious and aware, um, man, all the stuff that's happening in the news. You got this brother out here that was uh, well, you got this dude, not even a brother. This, this dude out here who uh, killed. I'm forgetting her name. Uh, just just killed her on the BART, um, you know, and it's like, wait a minute. So and then there was another video that just got released and it's just like this this little young African-American man boy um, who was trying to get his, his, you know, talk to his dad who had been arrested. And the police just like slam him to the ground and everything. I'm like, wait a minute. So you treat the guy who just killed people better than you treat the little boy who's just trying to get. That's the type of stuff that I'm talking about. 
So I get this question a lot when I give talks or give workshops. As a white person, what do I do? And here's the thing. Um, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a white person. Um, it's difficult for me to say you should do this or you should do that. I mean, I can tell you from my experience, but I also know it's difficult for, you know, the power dynamics that happen. I, always, I say this all the time, the same analogy. You know, if a woman walks in to a room with men and talking about, you know, uh, gender discrimination, feminism, she's going to lose most of the men. But if a man walks in and says the same thing, sure, he'll lose some folks and everything, but there'll be more of a power dynamic where others can lean in and be like, huh, all right, well, let me listen to this. And that's across the board in social science, research and literature, you know, power dynamics, power speaks to power. You know, and, you know, you may see some of the memes or you may see some of the hashtags, you know, white people go get your people, you know, go talk to your people. Um, and so you do need other white folks who are in this with us. Um, and that's really what this show is about today. Um, I brought on a, a friend of mine and we met on actually uh, on, on on Twitter, not AAR. I know some of you are like, didn't you say AAR? <laughs> no, nah, not AAR. Although he goes to AAR. Uh, Dr. Daniel Kirk. Brother Daniel Kirk, Ph.D., Duke University, uh-huh, check that out, is pastoral director at the Newbiggin House of Studies in San Francisco, California. He's the author of three books, most recently, A Man Attested by God, The Human Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels. Huh? <laughs> Prior to working for Newbiggin, he, uh, he was a New Testament professor at uh, Fuller Seminary. You can follow him on Twitter at J-R-D-K-R-K, J-R-D-K-R-K. And I'll post these in the show notes. So if you're listening, you know, you can go to the show notes. As always, whitehouchpodcast.com. He brews his own cursing reverend beer, roasts his own cursing reverend coffee beans, and single-handedly creates masterful artwork in the pizza tradition every Friday night. So y'all, Brother Kirk has got his thing going on. And uh, he had posted a tweet uh, back in, oh, my gosh, um, I think it was like May or something like that. And it caught my attention. I'm going to post the link to the to his tweet uh, in the show notes as well. It, it caught my attention. And I was like, man, this brother seemed woke. Let me uh, let me talk with him. We got to talking. I was like, man, I got to get you on the show. And. So I really want to, and we talked, this is, we recorded this, this, you know, a few months ago, but I was really wanting to, to save an episode, particularly on the pragmatics of white allyship. Now, this is one example. This is not the example. Does that make sense? Okay. Cause I, I, oftentimes I think people, you know, think, oh, okay, that's great. Let me go do that. This is one example. Take it in for what it is. Take it in for the context of, it, of, of what it is and, you know, and go with that. So this is one example of a white male um, who is able to utilize his privilege and engage with matters of race, religion, theology, um, and and begin to advocate um, and begin to get in there, um, you know, on, on our behalf. And, 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 and that's on our behalf. Um, but be able to get into spaces that most of us who are persons of color aren't able to get. Or most women who are even white women aren't able to get into. Um, and so that was, you know, last week I re- uh, I men- mentioned my man, Russ. Um, you know, he's a great ally. Um, and, you know, and this week I wanted to talk about Daniel Kirk. And I'm not trying to just say, you know, white folks is, you know, they, you know, we should, we should all just give them a pass. Of course not. 
But I do also want to highlight the folks who are out there trying to do some amazing stuff. And I know there are other people. In fact, I had uh, another person I interviewed and we sat down and everything. And then they listened to the, the recording and they were like, you know what? Give me a minute. I need to sit on this. I was going to do a two part series, a, two, a back to back, a part one, part two. Um, but they were just like, you know, let me let me just wait on that. And, and uh, I got to you know work some other stuff out. And I was like, cool, don't worry about it. I'll go with this one. So this is it's it this is this is a struggle man i mean again i don't know what it's like to be white and to try to you know uh you know get called a, a race traitor or you know nowadays where you're you know the the narrative is that white people are losing their ethnic heritage and so you know you are essentially becoming a genocider you know you are killing off your own race by siding with ethnic minorities and so um yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting time, y'all, that we live in. And so, as I've been saying, as you've been if you listen to season two here, you know it's an interesting time. Um, so I wanted to bring on brother Kirk, um, to come out. He's a freelance writer at the Foglifter Communications. He says he's using words to further the flourishing of people and the organizations they lead. Um, he had some some <laughs> some slip ups himself over at uh, Fuller, and it wasn't his slip up, but it was Fuller slip up um on letting him go you know over the whole thing on gender and sexuality and all that stuff it's like man when we let good people go over minuscule issues like this right and i know some of you go minuscule issues i'm not saying that we shouldn't be talking about sexuality and gender i'm just saying that why not present another view why not present something that is goes against the grain aren't we all here to learn one of my problems, right, with seminaries is that we just kind of created this a McDonaldization, a cookie cutter process of putting people through. Um, and we should all think the same way. We should all act the same way. We should all be on some theological boat that we all are the same. And I'm like, no, that's not the gospel. That's not even biblical. So daniel kirk stood up and he's out there doing his thing and i just appreciated it like i said it started with a tweet it ended with a great conversation and so i wanted to bring him on um and so again that's who it is and so i will put his uh twitter handle and information in the show links as always um check him out and, and like i said i'll put that tweet in there you know check out the tweet and you know see what you think and everything and again i'm not trying to make white folks out to be the ultimate saviors but I am saying that more white folks who are out there need to be able to step in the gap and step in and then say, yo, <laughs> nah, nah, ain't gonna happen today. Nah, ain't gonna happen today. That's one of the things that I saw when I was out in Ferguson um, with the white protesters and activists who were there. They utilized their privilege. They would go, like when the police would show up, they would go and they would call senators or they would call uh, the mayor or they would utilize that, right? And they would call the media and say, show up here. They would surround the black activists and, and form like a human shield around them. And they're like, if something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen to us first. And with these cameras here, you then got to reckon with you just did something to another white person. So that's that's a great example, right? You know, of how do you utilize privilege? How do you utilize that? Again, I can't answer that question. You know, when somebody asks me, you know, what is a white person? What should I be doing? I mean, it's like, man, I I can't fully answer that. So I wanted to bring on, again, a pragmatic view of looking at white allyship and how some of that stuff gets played out in a particular context with Brother Daniel is doing this stuff. And so, again, check it out. See what you think. Um, holla back. WhiteHodgePodcast.com or you can go to WhiteHodge.com. Uh, the course, my book is out, uh, Homeland Insecurity, uh, the uh, hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context published by IVP Academic. Hot off the press. 
Um, so check that out. I'm going to be talking more and more about that. I'm also on several other podcasts. I'll be posting some notes to that. Um, I think I, I was just on uh, April Diaz's Global Fringe. Uh, I was on um, Spanglish, Seminary Spanglish, or Spanglish Seminary, which is an amazing podcast. You got to go check that out. And so I'll be posting some of those as well. So for those of you, you know, who want to hear, you know, different takes and everything, I'm, you know, I'll have those uh, in the mix as well. So without any further ado, as I always say, <laughs> here's Brother Daniel and I having a great conversation around race, theology, religion, sexuality, and all that good stuff. Check it. No, um, that's that's good. You know, I'll, I'll tell my story a little bit. Where uh, you know, I I kind of I get to a lot of these places through a more generalized uh, understanding of uh, the the influence of the uh, the cross and reshaping our understanding of of power and the kingdom of God and reshaping. And so, you know, I think there'll be a lot of potential tangents and uh, topics to talk about as we as we get into it. Which, yeah, I mean, kind of, it it'll give us a little bit of a box to hold my various uh, endeavors and tirades and whatever. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm, well, I'm with it, man. I, uh, I'm just glad somebody else uh, has the the tirades, man. Because I know I can I can go off, and you were, <laughs> you were hitting on some good stuff, brother. So I was like, man, I gotta. This is this is this is beautiful. Yeah, you know, if I, I, I felt like the one thing that I did was I was being willing to name some names, and you know that I think that helped some folks out. You know, yeah. I think that I think this. I think the students at Fuller have been sitting around waiting for someone to call bullshit for at least the last two months. (laughs) Oh, man, that's great. That's awesome. Cool, man. All right, brother. Well, we are rolling here. Um, Brother Daniel, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the Profane Faith, brother. Good to have you. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh, for those of you who are listening and don't know, I'm going to definitely post this link in the show notes. Uh, but uh, one of Daniel's tweets caught my attention, which we're going to you know, highlight on here. But, Daniel, for those of those, those are the folks out there who don't know you and what you do and how you came to be who you are, if you wouldn't mind just, you know, sharing a little bit about that and who you be. Yeah, it's a. It's the, the classic story of the, the Enneagram 8 trying to find his way in the world. Ah, um, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, at least uh, a quarter of your audience probably already knows my story before I start talking. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, my, my faith background growing up, uh, I, was, I was brought up in, uh, there used to be something called Moderate Southern Baptist. Okay. Uh, like this, like before the before the fundamentalists started busing people in uh, in the '80s to take over the Southern Baptist Convention votes. Um, you know, you could go to Southern Baptist Church and they'd have ordained women and stuff. Uh, you know, being being ministers, and that was that was my upbringing. Uh, and uh, my mom was a music minister, and so you know, I was kind of I was kind of deep in. Uh, youth group in high school was a was a place where you know where I was. That's where my that's where my people were. Um, and uh, when I went to college, uh, I I went to Wake Forest University my first couple of years and took okay. a religion class and just realized, hey, this is where my passion is. Like I'm gonna major in this, and then uh, I felt like the Lord was calling me to to um, be a preacher. So I just kind of set myself toward that, and then. Uh, what started happening was through that class and some other things, you know, you start studying theology in college and next thing you know, you're a Calvinist. Um, it's, it's a strange thing that happens to people. Um, we got to figure out a, there's got to be some sort of inoculation against that. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, 
so I ended up in uh, you know, kind of a conservative Presbyterian sort of world. Uh, I went to, to Westminster Seminary, and um, yeah, they taught me a, a they taught me a couple of good things there. Uh, for for all that the theology makes me shake my head now, okay. uh, yeah, they taught me about uh, the importance of union with Christ for understanding the theology of, of Paul and, and salvation, uh, and they taught me biblical theology, which was. Uh, everything we need to know didn't plop down out of heaven uh, all at once. Um, that there's you know different things happening in different times. Mm. I think you know it's good to to have a couple of those pieces in place. But um, so I, I went to go to my PhD at Duke, and I, I went there still uh, thinking that the Lord wanted me, a pre- me to be a preacher. Um, but uh, when I graduated, my, my wife hates when I tell this joke, and she's standing over there. Uh, she's going <laughs> to shake her head at me. Uh, but uh, I graduated from seminary. I was like a week short of turning 25. I was like, look, nobody's going to let me pass the results until I'm 30. I've seen the, the job descriptions. I know what that's like. So I can either go kill a youth group for five years, or I can go get a Ph.D. So, uh, <laughs> so I went to a Ph.D. in New Testament at Duke. And, uh, you know, I, I, I started to... To learn there from, uh, I think Richard Hayes is my advisor, and, and a couple things I, I learned from him, and kind of took those two things that I had in seminary about the centrality of Christ and that biblical theology piece, and helped me start to see how they should influence Christian ethics. Uh, you know, he had his book Moral Vision of the New Testament, mm. and talking about how uh, the cross, the community of Jesus followers, and new creation were these three seminal markers of like what drives the, the ethics of the New Testament. So, you know, I, I started to get this, this pretty deep sense of, uh, especially from the cross, like the, the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, uh, mm-hmm. the way that the cross in the New Testament is less about how atonement works and more about what kind of people we're supposed to be uh, and ways that really um, take apart prevailing power structures uh, and, you, you know, lift up, the, lift up the humble and bring down the proud and, and all of that. So, uh, and, and then the other piece of that, you know, he talked about community. One thing I learned from, from Hayes is that the composition of the community is a theological fact that influences and shapes what is right and wrong for the people of God. Hmm. And like those two things, I think, have been sort of deeply transformative. Um, so, yeah, so I just want to say one more thing about my personal journey from when I was in grad school, and that yeah. is I tried to get li- licensed to preach in my conservative Presbyterian world during grad school, uh, and they wouldn't do it because I had a couple of small differences with the 86-page Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that not getting licensed to preach and not being able to be ordained when God was calling me to be a preacher uh, and, like, being kept out um, by that power structure, I think that personally that's probably one of the most significant transformative things that's happened to me in my theological development. Okay. Uh, because it, it gave me the experience of what it looks like for people in the name of Jesus to wield their power in a way that I deeply believed was antithetical to the will of God. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden my eyes were opened in a more real way to my sisters who felt called to ministry but couldn't get ordained in that particular denomination. And, you know, so I started doing stuff for uh, gender equality and then um, you know, some other things down the line. Uh, but, yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty big moment for me, uh, I think. And, uh, yeah, so I've kind of skipped from, from place to place trying to 
kind of be there, but kind of push forward with what I think justice in the kingdom of God looks like. And yeah, I, I usually keep pushing forward. And then I look back eventually and realize I'm somehow stepped out of whatever community I was in or employment I had and you know, yeah. <laughs> looking for the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, man. Well, man, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, I know, uh, yeah, I mean, just in my own journey, I've had plenty of issues with some of the fundamental beliefs of of whatever denomination uh, that was uh, a part of. I'm curious, uh, what was uh, with the uh, death of Dr. James Cone? What did, uh, mm-hmm. what did Cone, what did Cone represent to you, for you? And how did that, you know, how did that, you know, how, how did he affect your, just your own theological uh, worldview? Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, so right now, um, little story, I'm working for a, uh, an organization called New Begin House in San Francisco, and I'm, I'm directing a, a lay nine month fellowship. So I've been, I've been redoing the, the curriculum for that. And, uh, uh, like a few weeks ago, I just kind of tweeted out that it's a lot easier for me to engage in diversity and minority voices when I'm engaging with theology because my field was New Testament studies. Uh, and what I said was, uh, in, in my specialization, I was given white tools to answer white questions. Mm. Um, and like, that's what I'm used to doing. When I get outside my specialty, I don't have as many tools, so I can grab the stuff. I don't have the preformed ideas, right? And so one of the books we're, we're going to probably use next year is um, – Oh gosh, uh, I, the only James Cone book, the title that's coming to mind is Crossing the No, God of the Oppressed. There we go. We're going to use God of the Oppressed. And so, you know, I was looking in that, and at the, in the intro, like the, almost the last thing he says is, like, in our seminaries, what we've been given people is white tools to answer white questions. Mm. You know, it's where he talks about, like, for, uh, for the black person, you know, the question isn't so much, you know, is Christ consubstantial sitting next to God, the father eternal in heaven. The question is, is he with me in the slave shack? Um, and you know, different, very different question, uh, based on a a very different location. So, you know, I, I think that some of the, probably because, you know, I studied new Testament and at a place that was dealing with very classical, uh, you know, questions of Bible and theology, I think probably the ways that, that Cone has influenced me have been mostly indirect uh, through people who have learned that from him and spoken it around me uh, yeah. so that those sorts of sensibilities really kind of have been able to get deep inside of me, uh, you know, with without the, the direct influence. And so that when I pick it up, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is exactly the thought that I articulated. But I know I could have, you know, I would have never articulated that if he hadn't come and, uh, and, and spread his gospel uh, for the, the past 50 years. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's just a, that's a testimony to the, the power uh, of his voice and, and influence. Man, that's, yeah, that's the truth, man. That is the double truth, Ruth. I mean, I know, you know, when I was in seminary, I mean, I, I, was, I was privileged to have read that. And, uh, you know, it was uh, Black Theology and Black Power. And, and I think um, uh, the cross and, let's see, I'm trying to look at my, my bookshelf right now. Um, but you know, God of the oppressed, there we go. Um, and those are the two first books that, that I was introduced to. And, and only because it was, and it was white professor in systematic theology. Uh, we were covering, you know, these different, uh, he had just put together this whole reader on systematic theology and we were kind of going through different specificities. And, you know, this was like my second quarter there. And, you know, they, like I said, James Cone popped out. I, it was, I mean, it just blew my mind when I read that. I was like, Whoa, 
Um, and so, you know, I've just been a fan ever since. And I've just been, well, you know, asking folks, like, you know, what what has been the influence? And so that's, man, that's beautiful. That's, you know, did he hear just the, the, the influence and the power that Cohn has had, you know, around. Speaking of Cohn, yeah, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, this is one of those things where, you know, I feel like, um, okay, I'm a Bible guy. And one of the things that I wrestle with a lot, especially someone having an evangelical past, you know, I, I call myself post-evangelical because I'm haunted by the Bible in the ways that I think my just my just my liberal friends aren't. But uh, like I said, those roots are deep. Uh, but I, I feel like uh, what how we think about what the Bible is, is one of those critically important things for what sort of theologies we will allow ourselves to develop, right? So like, you know, the idea that the Bible is the word of God and therefore, right, the inerrancy thing, it can only ever mean one thing on any given topic, right? Like, yeah, that creates this big, strong lens. But, you know, like if you'll just let critical scholarship open things up just a little bit, right? Like everybody knows that, you know, three or four different people wrote the Pentateuch, right? So let yourself read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Right, you have two completely, almost, you know, they're incompatible stories of creation with two totally different depictions of God. Is God the God who like sits way far off and speaks things into existence from afar, or is God the God who gets God's hands dirty and like walks around, right? Like almost like one was written to to, to counteract the other. And I, I feel like there's this this beautiful invitation in critical scholarship to to recognize that like what the community of people telling the God God stories is, uh, is very different from what we wanted it to be and what we expected. But if we'll let it be, then we can see that, you know what, context does matter. And people will tell the story differently based on where they're located. And, yeah, and, you know, the idea even that there is a, like, you know, this, you're talking about reading these things in, in theology class, right? You know, like you pick up a, these books by, you know, by, be it by James Cone or by, and, and, you know, I'm looking at stuff just by uh, people from like South Korea or a Native American or, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper. And like those categories, like we, when we come asking those questions, like who is God? Who is Christ? What is humanity? Right. Like you're already stuck. You're already stuck doing the kind of theology that has been the kind of the, the theology of the victor. Um, mm. And all of these folks, all of these folks are saying like, hey, you know, if the whole planet isn't involved then you don't yet have something that is as big as the the big work that god is doing right and if you're not changing the systems that dehumanize people then you're not about the same business of god whereas you can do classical theology and literally never address those questions wow Wow, man, that's really good. That's really powerful right there. I love I love when we start to break down just, just different theological paradigms. And you're right. I think we, you know, we haven't allowed enough of just a, a critical, you know, engagement, a critical discourse, you know, of that and and, 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 and better understanding, you know, what it is, you know, those passages are saying, you know, uh, for modern day engagement. Um, yeah, that's what's up. So let me ask this. So this is the <laughs> so the tweet that got my attention was uh uh, from you, I think you posted it on April 26, um, 2018. And it says, you know, the title was at that moment when I read Caitlin Beatty's report on a Wheaton gathering. I mean, so this Wheaton gathering, I mean, I, it was, it was interesting just to begin with. I had a couple of friends who were invited and they were like, you know, we were, we were on this, like this, um, 
I don't know. I want to say chat thing. It's, it's we're we're all on our phones, but it's like this whole group. There's I don't know. There's about twenty of us in this in this group, and uh, you know they had emailed or texted us and was just like, "Hey, I'm at this thing, and you know this evangelical gathering." And I was just like, "Man, that's just funny, man. This is just this is just wild that they're having this up there." And uh, huh, interesting. And so I don't know, man. I'd love to get your 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 thoughts in on that. I mean, some of the things that you you said in this tweet was unbelievable. When I when it came over to my Facebook site, I mean, people were like, "Man, that brother give no f's, man. That's that's what's up, man." I was like, "Man, I know, man. He he going he going in over there, man." So, <laughs> I love it, man. So, just the one, I mean, just the first one. I say, and then I and then I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Is as most basic as this: if theology has room for a sacred secular divide, or if your theology is capable of being learned without being practiced, or if your community ever talks about needing to move from head to heart or thought to action, your theology is white and privileged. When I saw that, I was like, whoa, this brother, oh no, oh man. So man, what was going on, man? As you read this article, as you saw the report, man, what was what was happening for you, man? What was, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, as I read the article and I, I heard the, the report about the conference, it just, you know, Kate Kitlin Beatty uh, articulated what was going on there as she did, it was almost this blunt that basically there were the, the baby boomer white guys uh, who were just like, I think we all need to settle down. Uh, and then there were, you know, like the younger generation, uh, including uh, people of color, uh, who were like, uh, yeah, there's some there's some work we need to do here. <laughs> um, right. And uh, you know, I just uh, things just kept flooding back. You know, I've seen uh, Tim Keller was there and was you know he he was doing the both sides thing. You know, like you know we've all been politicized and both sides need to you know there's perp- there's red there's red America and blue America and red Christianity and blue Christianity and you know all this and uh, I I think they sort of triggered some things that Keller has said recently uh, about you know, basically salvation isn't about um, other things so much as forgiveness of sins, right? Like forgiveness of sins is the gospel uh, for that guy. Um, So that, you know, this other stuff just becomes what you do in gratitude in, in response. And, you know, it's, that's just thin, right? The idea that the, the gospel is about forgiveness of sins is just thin. It leaves you basically with the first, literally 25 chapters of Matthew have nothing to do with the gospel, right? And they're like, <laughs> there's got to be something wrong with that, um, that that's not the gospel too. So, you know, I think what, like, like I said, I've been, I've been working on uh, revising this curriculum. And the thing is, like, you know how it is, you know, when you get in deep to something and, you know, I'm, I'm reading broadly, I'm, I'm looking at this stuff. And, and again, I, you know, I'm reading, looking at, you know, books like Embracing the Other, it's a South Korean awesome, you know, stuff on spirit and, you know, transformation of the world and mm. Randy Woodley, Shalom and the community of creation. And you're getting all of those Native American sensibilities that are like, and this is what God is doing in Jesus. And then you get the, you know, you get the, the Tim Kellers of the world who are saying the gospel's forgiveness of sins. And it just, it just blew my mind how, how privileged it is to be able to say that, to occupy the social location where you could think that the best thing that God could do for you is forgive your sins and nothing else really counts as the gospel. Like what kind of life do you have to be living uh, where that's like, that's the worst thing you can think of and the best thing that God could do. Um, 
and you know i yeah, well, I just, well you, I, I even, just you even, it. no, 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 man. I mean, well, you even said that. I mean, it's like it's just the reality that many says most people uh, in that room would at times absolutize our, our alienation from God. Looking at you, Tim Keller, you add him and everything. You tag this brother up and everything at the gospel <laughs> shows that the gospel of evangelical is itself white and privileged. I was like, man, I mean, by the time I got down and there was another one that said evangelicalism as represented here is not only largely white of skin, but manifests whiteness privilege of being white sustained by a myriad of unseen unaware actions and positions that pass as a normal. When I saw, it, I was like, Oh man, Norman gets that. That oftentimes has been so strong. I mean, it's like, yes, I come out of evangelical organizations. I've worked for them. I've, I've, I've I've come through that. I mean, but that there's always been this this set of normalcy that comes with understanding. I think that's part right. That's part of the, colon, the colonialism. And so, like when you're naming that, right. it's just because po- you know white people set culture and standards to maintain power and privilege, man. And, and so, well, and and let me ask you this: as you're talking about, you know, I'm you, you you're reading wide, and and you've named some great authors already, man. How how have you arrived at this, particularly as a white male? Uh, I'm assuming heterosexual. You said you're, uh, you're you have white. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So how? So as a cisgendered male, white male, how have you arrived at this? And then the other to follow up to that is, what's the pushback? Did Tim Keller ever get back to you? Did like what? Uh, what's, <laughs> what's 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 been now, happening? Man? I'm not going to get Christmas cards this year, but he never got back <laughs> to me. I don't know. <laughs> oh man, you know it's it's been a journey. Uh, you know, I, I, part of it uh, has. Uh, you know, uh, well, okay. So some of the stuff in the background, you know, I was listening recently to your your conversation with Daniel Camacho about um, the uh, did I get, his his last name is Camacho, right? Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Did I? No, yeah. you got it. Um, uh, about uh, reconciliation, and you know, I'll say that you know, I I came of age in the in intervarsity in the '90s when reconciliation was was very much the rage, you know, and so uh, I for uh, I I would say that. I've had some sensibilities uh, toward that direction and just, you know, uh, uh, maybe I've, I was taught to, to listen uh, a little bit there. Um, and then, you know, moving through, like, leaving the conservative Presbyterian world and um, thinking about uh, women in ministry. And I, I did some work on uh, patriarchy in the first century and, and before and looking at how patriarchy yeah, when the patriarchy isn't just about um, men ruling over women. It's a whole series of like a, a whole s- social categorization where certain people with certain characteristics are seen as better than others, right? So men are better than women. Romans are better than others. It's better to be strong than weak, to conquer than to be conquered, and uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, to be free than to be a slave. So, you know, doing that work uh, helped me to, to put some some hooks on some of the the systemic um, uh, the systemic uh, theological issues that the church has had to wrestle with, and that that Western society has had to wrestle with. You really the, the history of America living into the idea that all men are created equal means more than all white landowning men, you know, and that that might mean women, that that might mean uh, people of African descent, that that might mean you know LGBT people, you know, all of that. It's it's all one big issue. So so I think that there's been a lot that there's been a lot cooking in the background for me. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, 
I think what really kind of pushed me over the edge, uh, about a year and a half ago, Christina Cleveland came out to our church to do some stuff, and I followed up with her, and we were having a phone call. And like I was talking about something that just completely drove me crazy in a uh, – and something that I read as a New Testament scholar and that I respected, but it drove me crazy. And she was like, oh my gosh, that's just such white privilege to be able to say something that asinine and like be venerated for it. And it just kind of, I was just like, okay, what I need to do is to start understanding whiteness and, you know, white privilege and stuff. I was like, where's the reading list? So she gave me the list, you know, the link to her reading list. And I just started reading stuff on whiteness. And you know, so, I mean, really, it, this is like a, a recent thing for me just to, to get into, okay, it's not just about like having white skin or being white, but looking at whiteness as a social construct and, and realizing that white is normal, um, that it, it, you know things that we perceive as normal and business as usual are not only white ways of doing things, but but often uh, often inadvertently promote uh, white privilege and things. So yeah, I started getting into that, and then uh, last fall, um, yeah, I had I've been doing some work on. Um, uh, theological interpretation of scripture for a long time. And I've had, okay. I've had, I've had some severe reservations about this movement, uh, which generally speaking uses like the creeds or something like that, the rule of faith as like, this is how you're supposed to interpret the Bible. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it's coming along into the space that's been created by postmodernism where everybody's like, well, I can interpret the Bible based on, you know, my social location. And they're like, well, my social location is the orthodoxy of the church. And so I'm going to interpret that way. And Oh, by the way, this is what God said. So this is the right reading. Right. So it takes the step <laughs> postmodern opening to exercise its, it's modernistic, you know, meta narrative. Um, and so I decided, so in Congress, so that had been cooking for a long time. And then Christina Cleveland had given me all this great reading to do. And I was like, I'm going to explore theological interpretation as a perpetuator of white hegemony in the biblical studies Academy. Um, so that was my, my SBL paper last year. Okay. Uh, and really what my, the first time I took a deep dive and just started like really coming to grips with like, if this thing that you're doing is sustaining like the power structure of the church in, in its theological articulations, that is a perpetuation of whiteness in this, in this place that, that we live in, um, both in and of itself and because the way that it comes in alongside, you know, African American or Asian or Latino or you know other sorts of located readings, not only as one of them, but the one that is claiming to give the, the right answer. Man. So yeah, so that, that's been a, a little bit of my my journey, and so uh, with that with that stuff on the table, you know, stuff like the the Wheaton gathering just kind of served as a trigger. No, man. I mean, it's uh, absolutely. I mean, because I just I don't know every, everything you're saying. I mean, it's stuff that I know I've been wrestling with um, and, you know, with with the election of Trump uh, really, for me, sealed my own kind of just like divorce from evangelicalism. I mean, I'd already been kind of out, but it just it was like we were amicably separated. But now I'm just like, all right, no, we need to make this official. <laughs> let's let's follow yeah. irreconcilable differences, man. Um, one of the tweets you, you put in this, you said, um, if the vice president goes to your church and your church left its denomination over the gay thing five or 10 years ago, 
you might stop to ask yourself what part your theology played in the rise of Trump Republicans. Looking at you, the Falls Church. Now, I'll, be, I'll confess my ignorance here. Who's the Falls Church? Who's who's uh, who's that? Uh, the Falls Church is a, uh, a big, uh, used to be Episcopal, now Anglican church um, in Northern Virginia. Okay. Um, I know of them in part because for a while in my post college, uh, post grad school days when I had been disowned by my denomination, I was looking around and, you know, the Anglicans were, were the, the up and coming shiny new toy for evangelicals. And I don't know, like if your listeners know this, but in the U S Anglican is code for we're the conservatives who left the Episcopal church. Um, <laughs> uh, and largely it was over, um, gay, gay ordination. Um, in part, it, some of them uh, also were not happy with women being ordained as priests. So, uh, you know, there's, it's kind of a, it's the conservative thing. And, and it's in some ways, the false church is kind of a, a big, like it's, it's a great sort of bland vanilla evangelical kind of place. You know, it's the kind of place that hires former university staff workers to be their pastors and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, <laughs> It gets fits with that culture, right? Yeah. And that, that's not a cut on university. You know, I, yeah. I mean, my, my yeah. Ivy students are some of my best, some of my best students when I was a seminary professor. Uh, my brother's former Ivy staff is a pastor now, but you know, like that, that, you know, this kind of whatever that vanilla evangelical thing is uh, there, that's there. And I didn't know that Pence went there until I was doing a little, I thought I was in the middle of my rant and I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is, this is a thing, right? Like, the way that evangelicalism has, when it's convenient, claimed that the gospel is not political, but at the same time sold itself to right-wing politics, uh, it's it's just it's baffling to me. And because of that, because it hasn't taken control of the narrative of how the gospel is always political, beginning with Jesus, it's gotten sucked into rubber stamping uh, a politics that doesn't look like Jesus at all. Man. Man, that's the that man. So real quick before I ask this next next the other questions, like what what has been the response? I mean, like have people sent you direct messages? People have been emailing you? Is um I don't know where you're. I mean, like your current employer? Like you know, are they is anyone calling you to the principal's office? As I like to say, I haven't gotten called to the principal's office yet. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I had a follow up tweet that was basically. Hi, everybody. I just want to tell you that I now have a fuller understanding of what white male privilege is in the Twitterverse. I literally got less than 10 negative tweetbacks, some of those like in conversation from somebody, nobody that was hostile or trolling me. And, you know, I had a couple of big retweets in a couple of folks who had 30 or 40,000 followers. So, yeah, Twitter tells me that I had like 75,000 exposures to that thread in like a 24-hour period. And like literally it was likes and retweets and yay, except for like five or ten folks that were like, hmm, you know, maybe not. Uh, so <laughs> I have no idea what that's about. As an Enneagram 8, I'm a little disappointed, right? Because like, you know, I want to I go off on people and you create good conflict. But uh, yeah, and... I don't know. I, I I haven't hung out with my boss since I did that either. So uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> no, that's but. well. That's interesting, man. That's interesting that you know that you say that. I know. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, because that does come up a lot. I know I've I've had plenty of conversations, plenty of trolls pop up on some of the stuff that I'm like, that wasn't even meant to be that way. Like, what? How? How did you get that from that? But so I was just, I was just, you know, I was just curious, you know, how that, you know, that came together. Yeah, I mean, I get crap sometimes too. But like, you know, the week, literally the week before, Rachel Held Evans was like, "Oh my gosh, I made the mistake of critiquing Tim Keller," and now it's like, you know, troll fest. Right. Right. yeah, it's because you're a woman and they don't think that you should be speaking. And that's the, that's the sexist, patriarchal evangelicalism that is that's the problem. Man, I tell you. Now, so what for you, man, after the 2016 election? I mean, I know for me that was that was uh, definitely a moment in where we find ourselves now. You know, and PRRI just released new numbers and saying that, you know, you, white evangelicals is definitely still in high support of uh, of Trump, you know, irregardless. I mean, and, you know, you hear this over and over and over, right? Like if Obama had done, you know, even hinted in any of that stuff. And if you can imagine that, you know, even if he had, you know, even watched a porn, like let alone be with a porn star, I mean, it would have been impeachment papers, you know, the next morning. So I'm just curious, man, how do you, how do you, I mean, how do we go in, in, in get about engaging this, man? Is evangelicalism on its last leg? Or should we embrace? Should we retool, rebrand, which is what I feel like some are doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd just be curious, man, like, you know, what you're, as a, as a New Testament scholar, as a scholar who thinks through these things, uh-huh. like, you know, just theologically, like where where we're at, you know, with, with evangelicalism, especially with, you know, the amount of money, quite honestly, that's that's involved with its organizations. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about the privilege? It's it's <laughs> all about the money, right? I mean, you know the you know I was on faculty at Fuller for about eight years, and there, uh, from what I hear, you know, I don't, I'd never had access to the numbers, but from what I hear, their largest uh, donor is you know folks who own a a farm equipment manufacturing company in you know, in the Midwest in Iowa, like. It's going to take a lot of doing before that family is going to be supporting anything like a progressive evangelical, you know, a progressive agenda, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. just the, the sociology of it all. Um, and so, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, uh, okay. So when I went to Fuller, I wasn't I wasn't even sure I was an evangelical then, but I was like, well, Fuller calls itself evangelical, and they're they're willing to have me, so I guess I'll own it. Um, and, yeah, I just think it's a the problem is the fundamentalists took over the term evangelical. Um, and, you know, that's, I think that's part of, there is a marketing problem there. Um, and, you know, other folks, you know, I mean, beginning, yeah, there's, there's been a, a long trail of folks who've been evangelical, realized the problems and have tried to coalesce around something different. Uh, you know, I think about emergent and some other things that came along in its wake. Um, but yeah, I think you know, trying to identify uh, as evangelical and save it from within, uh, that feels that feels very much like a lost cause to me. Um, on the other hand, I, gosh, I, you know, I hate to I hate to give up hope, um, but yeah, I, I, and in part the problem is like there's I wish that there was a bigger, a, a better big tent that people were, you know, could all go to. Um, but I just, I don't see it. So I'm not especially hopeful uh, <laughs> at this point. I, but there's so many persons who are doing good work, but the problem is, the problem really is the money. You know, it's yeah. so hard to build up an infrastructure, right? Yeah. Like you want to, you want to perpetuate this, like, 
you know, I've got, I mean, seminaries have, there's a huge, I've got a huge problem with the seminary model of training pastors, but it's a great way to perpetuate, a, you know, a, a culture and to, to give thought leadership to something. But it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And, you know, the ones that exist aren't going to do it. And, and the people who, who give to Christian causes with in the tens of millions of dollars are all old, um, you know, late baby boomers are older and it's, it's, it's really, it's really messy. Um, yeah, maybe that, I heard your guest from a couple of weeks ago saying, well, maybe the best thing to do in all this is just start giving money to the, you know, the black people who are doing good work. And I just want to add my amen to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, See what yeah. Well, and I mean, go on Twitter rants, which change people's minds. That's you know? right. That's right, man. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the money, the money is big. I mean, I think about, just the amount of, I mean, even when I've gotten quote unquote called into the principal's office was either something I said or somebody I brought to campus or whatever. I mean, it's, it's tied back to money. Some stakeholder heard this or some donor, you know, and it's like, there seems to be this coalescing and anyone who's taken a, you know, even a, a glance at the, the grant world or the fundraising world or just any part of where you have to deal with money and development. I mean, you already know, I mean, we, we cater so much to money in this culture, right? We, you know, it's like somebody has a million dollars and it's like, whoa, let's, you know, let's roll out the red carpet. And so I'm not saying necessarily we should, you know, treat people with money badly. Um, but I also know just the deference that comes with that. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. an interesting perspective as you're talking about just the future of that. I'm, I'm not very hopeful myself. I'm not, to be honest with you. I mean... I don't know. I've I've heard plenty of, or I've even just read tweets, or I've heard plenty of just you know young folks. And when I say young folks, probably those below twenty five or twenty five and under, you know, say like, look, man, you know, this is the reason why so many of us are walking away from this, you know, from Christianity in general. I mean, so it'd be interesting just how people in, you know equate evangelicalism with the 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 fullness of Christianity in general. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's true. It's easy to do. I mean, it's it's so pervasive. I mean, this is this is one of the things. I mean, in some ways, in part because of the way that evangelicalism has been a purveyor of of whiteness, it it is it, it just fits so well into our culture, right? Like it's it's been able to it's been able to affirm people in the capitalist way of life uh, to a degree that. It, it, it's a place where generally you can go and be successful in the way the world is telling you to be successful. And if you do, then you're going to be honored in the church and you can, you can thank Jesus for it. Uh, and so that, that marriage uh, makes, makes it really tough to, to figure, you know, to, to pull apart the, the social ills that we find ourselves in and the, that loud branch of Christianity that's, you know, that's cheering it on. Yeah. Yeah, well, and well, let me ask you this, man. As, again, as a scholar, I mean, I'd love to hear your your, your take on this. And I genuinely don't have a uh, uh, an agenda other than to, to to just wonder, like, where 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 do you think we stand right now, as 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 in the United States as a country? I mean, I hear some dangerous rhetoric coming out of Washington. Uh, as somebody who studies mm-hmm. communication theory, it's like, all right, well. There's there's interesting ways of setting up. I mean, even the example of Trump talking about like Sweden, he's like, oh, and here's Sweden. Sweden, like he mentioned Sweden, like nothing happened in Sweden, but he's just mentioning, oh, it's you know, this Sweden, they let a whole bunch of, you know, uh, refugees in. And it's just like, but nothing happened. But it gets that ringing in people's minds. I'm just curious, like, 
do we continue to have conversations with people who are so obstinate? Do we, what does that look like? I mean, this kind of even touches back to, you know, Daniel and I's, you know, conversation about reconciliation, right? It's like, you know, is, is this the time to be engaged in that? I mean, I, I'm just I'm genuinely curious, you know, to hear where where you find yourself, if at all, having conversations with, you know, a Trump supporter or somebody who's just hardcore mainline, you know, conservative and, you know, what, what loves their Second Amendment and, 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 and you know, in the whole nine. Right. So I, I don't know. I'd be curious just to hear to hear that and what you and what you think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm, my assessment is that. We are just we are just in full on tribe mode, and you know it's the people like us are good, and the people who aren't like us are bad, and everything our people say is true, and everything those other people say is bad. Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the most helpful things that I've read in uh, the last couple years uh, has been um, Jonathan hates the righteous mind. Um, he, I think he's an evolutionary psychologist, uh, okay. and he basically he, he talks about uh, studying like what are the most like basic ways that we respond to other people that um, that would be like good for our survival, right? So the idea that you would care for some someone because they're weak and helpless, like humans have to do this or else our species will go extinct. Right. So this is like evolutionarily, like this is this is a way that we think about right and wrong. You have to care for these cute, helpless things. Um, and then, you know, there's things about, you know, respecting elders and, uh, you know, uh, peers of your own level. And so he's got he ends up with about seven different ways that people um, may have moral authority. And if one of his big points is uh, in, in a lot of his work is that. We, as humans, our instincts make the decisions and our minds rationalize them. Hmm. So we, you know, we don't say, think the things we do or, you know, make the claims we make because our, our rational minds have arrived at this. We, we say what we think instinctively and our minds come behind and make a rationalization that, you know, that, that maps onto these different uh, ways of, you know, valuing and seeing what virtues are in the world. So, I mean, well, a couple of things I've learned from that. Um, one is, uh, it, it's, it is a lot of work, um, to build those deep, that deep sense of right and wrong, uh, and ways of, of doing it. Uh, another thing I learned from that is conservatives actually access a lot more of these things by their appeal to country, by their appeal to religion uh, and other things that liberals, you know, think that they're too cool for. Um, and so it's a very powerful, uh, you know, sort of line um, that's, you know, uh, or cluster uh, of convictions. Um, and so it, I, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, for people to feel safe with each other, a lot of work to, to de-escalate the, the conversation, like there's an us and them, and they want to take away everything from us. Um, and uh, yeah, I do think that if 
that we are in an unfortunate political position where we only have two parties. Uh, and so really the only way for the national thing to change is not only for Republicans to change their rhetoric, but Democrats have to decide that religious people and voices are important. All right, you wanna, uh, to the list of things that Hillary Clinton did wrong, that Obama did right, um, Obama actually realized that mobilizing young evangelicals was critical to his to his victory and his uh, his base. Uh, and a lot of Democrats don't want to have anything to do with religious people at all. Um, and Hillary didn't. And so we have to find ways to bring Jesus into in our. We need to bring our faith commitments into political conversations in more compelling ways. Uh, I think hmm. so. Yeah, I think there's a there's a whole there's a whole lot there. Um, I don't know how much of it how much of it helpful, but like I said, it, it's I feel like there's so much going on, and there's no easy fixes. Um, and yeah, you know, I I don't know how to talk to the the family that voted for Trump. You know, I just I just try to you know, talk about you know how the kids are doing and who my dog barked at. You know, <laughs> too much. Right, 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 man. Well, I mean, sorry. So let me take this a step further. That's and that's and that's great. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think just politically, and I think there was more going on with the Democrats. I mean, I've been. I mean, I'm dang sure no Republican or conservative in terms of political um, conservatism or theological conservatism. Um, but I, you know, I at the same time, I'm not necessarily a friend. Of, of like the Democratic Party either. I mean, I do think that, you know, that folks mm. just show up for, for votes, you know, particularly in the black community, right? It's like we don't see people and then all mm. of a sudden people want to have hot right. sauce in their bag and, you know, want to be, be um, uh, you know, friends and all that good stuff. I'm curious, though, what do you think? Um, do you think, I mean, you know, in like another 10 years, man, do you think that we're, we're spiraling out of control? Do you think we need to rein some things in? I mean, where, where do you think we are, man? Is, is another civil war coming? Will a civil war look different in the, you know, in the age of Twitter and Trump and hashtags? And I don't know, man, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I feel like we'll have a better sense in November after we have our midterm elections, um, just to see like have what, now that everybody saw that Trump really is who, you know, he showed himself to be on the campaign trail, will that change anything? Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, it's it's going to be, it's, it's weird. I, I think there's so many things that are pulling us in so many different directions. I think growing income inequality is going to be this other major component. Uh, and, yeah. you know, the question of whether, the question of whether poor white people will recognize that their 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 future stands or falls with poor people of color, like if if that could happen, like that would change the world. If somebody could come and unite the rural, you know, white Appalachian poor with the the urban poor of color, and be like, hey, everybody, the same systems are screwing all of us. Um, let's let's figure out how to, you know, how to move forward on this together. Um, like that could change the world. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I guess I have some hope that we have enough, uh, elections and things that, um, things can, can change for the better and in, in relatively short order. Uh, if we have to have eight years of Trump, I think we're going to be in this, uh, pretty serious, uh, hurt box. Um, yeah, I, 
I don't know, man. I don't know. Why, why you got to make me all depressed? Uh, oh. get, give me some, uh, going to talk to my spiritual director today. I'd be like, yeah, I'm still trying to follow that God who's not doing crap about the fact that we're going to hell. Oh, man. Yeah, brother. No, I know what you mean, man. Well, I mean... <laughs> Well, I mean, I ask those questions just because, I mean, it's it's been a it's been on the topic of, you know, several of the circles that I run in, you know, in terms of, you know, like, you know, future. I mean, and so obviously no one knows the future. We don't have a DeLorean doesn't go 88 miles an hour. And, you know, we don't you know, we don't dang sure don't have flux capacitors. So we don't necessarily know what, you know, future holds. But I do. I mean, as a, as a black man in this country, I, I definitely, you know, think about that. Like, what is what is my future? I mean, you know, you hear these stories happening over and over and over and. You know, (laughs) Starbucks is taking an afternoon. And so, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just always, you know, curious uh, on that. Um, What are some things you're up to right now, man? What are some things you're you're working on? What's what's the future look like for you? Good, sir. Uh, It's a a fair question. You know, um, I've been uh, away from Fuller for about two years now. And something that I wasn't expecting when I stepped away was. I didn't realize how much being in that context really gave me a sense of who my, who I was talking to, who my community was. And you know, if I'm in evangelical circles and you know, a school that calls itself evangelical, like, well, I know what I need to do. I need to pull these people a, a little bit in this direction. Um, but, you know, when, when I get into the Twitter verse and everybody's basically my people, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I need to do here. So, you know, I've got about 10 one page books on my hard drive right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really just, uh, uh, sitting, uh, with some of the stuff I've done and uh, I have you know, some things in progress. I'm thinking that I might do some stuff on the Bible. I mean, some of the things I, I outlined earlier about thinking about how critical scholarship gives us leverage on reimagining what the Bible is in a way that can be theologically constructed, constructive, uh, and maybe specifically working that out as kind of post-supersessionist, post-patriarchal, and post-white uh, in our reading of the Bible. So that's that would be kind of a, a big project that, that mm. might come along. But, you know, with all these things, one thing the age of Trump has done is it, it's made me stop and just ask about what really matters. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, how how do I engage my scholarship or, or my, my public voice or, or the work that I'm doing in this fellows program in a way that does matter. So, you know, what matters right now, I've got this fellows program and um, looking at the curriculum, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of built on some typical ideas and, you know, white, white meat with, uh, you know, is peppered with color because we know we're supposed to, right? You know, that kind of, you've seen, you've seen that syllabus, haven't you? Uh, I've written that syllabus, you know, I understand it, but you know, for me right now, the right thing is I'm going to, I'm going to blow up that syllabus and make sure that we have so much in here that's conscious of its non-white, non-Western social or non-Western social location that, we realize that this is all normal theology. Um, and this isn't the other theology for people who are doing a different thing, you know, as opposed to you know, the just normal theology, um, you know, uh, white theology. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, you know, I figure if I can, if I can get, you know, my group of 20 people living in San Francisco to, 
to realize that um, so that all theology is located in a social place, and most of us have had the privilege of not having to think about that, and it's had disastrous consequences for the people and the world around us. Like, you know, that's that's my next good thing, and, and I'm good with that. So, uh, you know, just just trying to take it bit by bit. Man. So, oh man, this is no, this is good, man. So let me ask, let me ask this last question here. Uh, well, two last questions. But the first one is, as a white male, man, and I, because I get this a lot, like, how do you see your role, you know, and what you where you're at right now, the space and place that you're in right now, man? What you've kind of answered this already, but I at least wanted to at least ask the question and and just and just and get your get your perspective on that. Yeah, it, you know, it it varies. Um, I I always. Uh, hmm. I always want to defer to what people in the world spaces I don't occupy who I want to advocate for. I, I try to defer to what those folks want, right? So, like for a while, for a while, I was doing a lot of work with the Christians for Biblical Equality. You know, it's this evangelical group that wants to advocate for the full inclusion of women. And you know, a couple times I was like, so you know, you're having me do the um, this uh, keynote address. They're like, yeah. I'm like, you know I'm male, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and the whole purpose of your thing is like advocating equality. For, they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And then, but then some, a lot of times folks go, look, it means so much more to me to hear you advocating for it because it's calling other people like you to lay down their power um, to, you know, to embolden the others. So, you know, like, a, I, like that's that's a, a little example. You know, I have a, a book that that is on my hard drive on um, trying trying to give like a, an evangelical perspective on same sex stuff. And one of the reasons why it's still on my hard drive is I just I'm not sure that the world needs a cis straight white guy to advocate for that anymore. You know, like there's been a couple of guys who've done it. Um, and there's a bunch of LGBT people who are telling their stories and whatever. And like, you know, I spent a lot of time on that book, but eh, maybe the world doesn't need it, you know? Mm. So, you know, and there's, you know, so like last fall I went to SBL and as a white guy stood in a room of all white people, except for my one African-American friend who came to give me support and talked about <laughs> how uh, theological interpretation is an expression of white hegemony. So, you know, <laughs> to go as a white guy in, into white space and call whiteness to account and try to think constructively about something better, you know, like that's the kind of thing that, you know, role that I, I might see myself playing. Um, and, yeah, as, you know, as I kind of run in the circles in which I naturally find myself. And, you know, I, I, there's probably still a little bit more work for me to do in figuring out how to place myself in places where I wouldn't naturally find myself so I can do a little bit more sitting and learning from people who don't look like me. But that's, you know, that's kind of the ongoing struggle. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely, man. Absolutely, man. Well, listen, man, the last, so the last question is, man, this is, and this has been great, man. This has been really rich um, it's the ground that we've covered and whatnot, man. Uh, where can people find you, man? And how can they, uh, how can, if they want to bring you out, where, where, where might they contact you at brother? Yeah, you can find me on, uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at J R D Kirk 
jrdkirk.com. That's cool. Uh, you know, if you want to look at some of my old stuff, I used to blog at jrdkirk.com. I also blogged on Patheos for a while at Storied Theology. So if you want to see some of the things I've been up to, you could you could check some of that out. Um, but yeah, you can you can reach out to me there. Uh, yeah, I've also got a Facebook author page that I haven't been updating since I haven't been blogging. But uh, yeah, yeah, find me on that. Find me on the interwebs. I uh, love to, to connect with folks. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I feel like there's, here's the deal. Like I, I look at America and I think there's so much like garbage going on because there is, but like there are so many good people doing so much good work right now too. And like, I just take encouragement from that. You know, there's so many like women on Twitter who are kind of tearing it up being the great theologians and, you know, you just connect, you can connect with folks like uh, who are, you know, just doing really great uh, black theology, uh, you know, Broderick Greer and, um, and, you know, other folks that I'm thinking about uh, on, on the Twitter. So it's just, it's a great time. And like, that's one of like the, one of the benefits of this age is you can see those, those lights shining in the darkness, you know, yeah. through the flicker yeah. of your computer screen sometimes. Just remember that like there's, those folks are there and we're doing our work and having our impact. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what we can do, right? In our in our places, and it, and it is happening. So uh, maybe we don't need to completely despair. And um, if if Trump is Trump is helping wake a bunch of us up out of our slumber, you know, so much the better. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's some amazing voices that are out there, man. And so, yeah, I I, I feel you on that, man. That's good stuff. Good stuff, brother. Well, brother Daniel. Thank you so much for taking the time and and and, and coming out uh, to uh, to the show. Yeah, so great. Uh, I hope that we'll be able to like connect in real life someday. It's real great uh, connecting with you here. Absolutely, man. Well, I'm usually at AARSBL, man. So if you know of anything, Denver, come Denver. I don't know if you're going this year, but I'll definitely be there. All right, we'll have to see if we connect if I make it out. I heard that, man. Well, thanks again, brother. And for those of you who are listening, again, I'll put you know these links in the show notes along with the tweet that got all this this great conversation going. Uh, thanks again, brother. Continue the work. All right. You too, man. Peace. Turn the page. On the top of the next page on your writing tablet, I want at the left-hand side on the top line, I want you to write the words, how they looked. Then I want you to write three adjectives describing how the people in the other group looked to you during this exercise. Everybody put your eye color, brown or non-brown, at the top of that paper. People in the middle put non-brown. People on the outside put brown. All right, now leave three lines under your last adjective. Leave three lines and put the words, how I felt, on the next line. How I felt. Read yours. Uh, foolish, apprehensive, sad. Foolish, apprehensive, sad. How many of you were sad? Anybody sad? What were you sad about? Uh, that you would teach this in the, way, in the manner that you chose. That I would teach this in the manner that I chose. Kind then, of like, kind of like uh, fighting fire with fire. Yeah, but that works. When people go through this exercise, I see this happen every time. It's very similar to going through the five stages of grief. First they deny that what I'm saying about them is true, then they get angry, you've seen that happen, then they go into the bargaining stage, 
then they get depressed, then they accept it and go along with it. What have you learned, honestly? I've learned a lot of things. I've learned that you can uh, compare the stages of loss to the loss of power. And, uh, does that sound logical to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah, did that, is that what happened in here this morning? Yeah, I'd say so. Is that sick? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's sick. Yeah, that's sick. And if it's sick in this room with this many students, well, there's it out of here on a daily basis. I feel that you're making an assumption that, that, the, that the biggest hurt is through uh, black and white issues. And that might be true. However, I feel that, that there are those who have gone through a lot of pain and prejudice by not being black. It has nothing to do with a race issue, but has, every other, has to do with every other issue. And so it seems like you're, you're assuming that he has hurt more than I have simply because he, his, his issue is more prominent than mine. And do I know what your issue is? No, I, no. Do I know what his issue is? You're making the assumption that yes, but yes. you don't know his, his day to day. Carrie doesn't want to hear. I know how people, how this. Carrie wants, I think, that Carrie is determined to see this from her own agenda. And no matter how often you tell her, you have choice. People of color have no choice, Carrie. She can change her clothes, she can change her hair, she can change her ornamentation. People of color can't change their color.